we have something special for you this week. It's a Best of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul episode. And it's because it was so good, we want to be sure everyone gets a chance to hear it. Right. That's our reason. We really care. Plus, it's a holiday week. Oh, oh yeah, that. Might have had a little to do with it. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. All right. But we will be back next week with a brand new show. And that one will be special. For what it's worth. Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And Paul, today I'm as bubbly as a bee. Rick, that doesn't mean anything. I think you're bumbly as a bee. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, but it is New Year's Eve on the way, and uh, you know what that means? Bad football games? Precisely. <laughs> Plus, it's the season for bubbly. Oh, man. I'm going to tell you that I think any season is a good season for bubbly. Yeah, I would agree, too. But this is a pretty good time. you got to do it. Is. And yep. that's what we're talking about today, good old sparkling wine. Plus, we have listener questions about flying corks and the number of bubbles in a bottle of champagne. We have some historic history about sparkling wine. Our horrible wine writing is full of froth. Full of froth. <laughs> Froth. Full of froth. That's easy for you to think. Yeah, full of froth. <laughs> and we'll tell you why we usually say sparkling wine or bubbly, but not champagne all the time. Excellent. Good. That's oh. easy. It has to come from champagne. I know that answer. Yeah, that's a pretty simple one, isn't it? Um, but, you know, the, there, are, uh, there are good bubblies all over the place. All over the world. Yeah. And more and more every, every, every year. And somebody knew. I had some really good sparkling wine from England recently. It was actually really good. Well, uh, you know, we should say, and we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, later, but, you know, it, sparkling wine sort of requires a colder climate. And yes. that, that is the wine that they can make probably, uh, uh, if any, in, in England. In fact, there's some historical evidence that the first sparkling wine was made in England, not in Champagne. I, th- I thought that was sparkling mead. No, no. it was actually wine. Yeah, well, it's actually well wine. And, and, you know, there are, um, there are some sparkling wines that are very similar to... Uh, to, to Champagne. Champagne, of course, a region in France. <clears throat> Most regions in France make some, many I should say, make some version of sparkling wines and yep. called Cremants. Yep. Um, French Accorda in Italy, in Italy <clears throat> northern yep. uh, lovely wines. And some are really different too, like, say, Lambrusco, which is... Yep. Well, Aspic Yeah, another, another version. Yep. But, Paul, I think you pointed out to me something the other day about Champagne was adapting uh, its flavors for its markets. Well, it always has. Uh, Champagne has, over the centuries, um, always adjusted what it makes to make sure that it's exactly what people want to drink. And they're making a slightly different version of Champagne for sale in China than they make, for example, for sale in the U.S. And traditionally, the English have always liked their Champagne with a little more age on it. So different people, different strokes, different folks. Right. In fact, that is the great debate between uh, England and France where they in the the region of Champagne is whether Champagne should be aged. The the Brits say yes. The French say drink it fresh. I say it doesn't matter. The word comes from sparkling wine is exciting and luxurious and sexy, kind of like us. <laughs> you think so? Or maybe dream on. Yeah, maybe dream maybe, on. maybe exactly not like us. <laughs> and anything. Um, so one of the things we want to help uh, folks do, and 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 this is this is a questions we don't we don't have any question on this at the moment this week, but we get these kinds of questions a lot. I certainly do. I know you do, which is. What those what the labels mean? What what right. you know the descriptors mean? And and one of the things, for example, is that extra dry is actually not kind dry of sweet. at all. Yeah, kind of sweet. And so I'll take it very quickly through. Uh, take notes or or not. But the things to remember: if it's got brut on there, if the extra brut, brut natural, brut 
No, this is specifically sharp, sparkling wine. Because if we're wine. talking about aftershave, that's something else entirely. Yes. Well, that is a little sweet. I've tried it. Yeah, it's not bad. And it's, it's really good with orange juice. Yeah. Um, but uh, so so uh, extra brute, brute natural. Those are the really, really dry. And then Bone just, dry. And just plain brute is generally pretty, pretty dry. Pretty dry. Under 1.5% sugar. So you wouldn't right. notice the sugar in anything labeled brute. Whatever, whatever kind of sparkling wine they've got that on there. Extra dry actually is kind of sweet. Just a little Just bit. Just a little bit Just sweet. Just a little bit sweet. And it, yeah. it fits a lot of palates. You know, you see a lot of extra dry in, in super, on supermarket shelves because mm-hmm, it really mm-hmm. does. It's sort of for the people who are sort of new to sparkling wine, um, that one is— Well, and is, for standing around at a cocktail party, it's a really it. easy yeah. wine yeah. to drink. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a range in that, too. But that basically, you can have like three or four teaspoons in a bottle. Yep. There's a, then, then you start going, and it's you don't find these a lot in supermarkets, but you will see them in wine shops and other places. And in order, they are sec. Which de- is French for dry. Yeah, which, okay, so remember, because extra dry was sort of sweet, so dry is less really dry than the sweet. This <laughs> really is the way sweet. the French think. So dry it's, is dry is very sweet. Then there's demi-sec. Which and, is half dry, which yeah. is even sweeter. Yes, which is, you get the logic here. Yeah. And then do, D-O-U-X, so, and, and that's like drinking, that's a dessert wine. So when do I get to explain the historical roots for all of that and why it makes sense? Well, why not now? Well, okay, because I know we have, we got our trumpeters coming at some point. Yeah, we got some other. But history, they're not too. quite ready here. Yeah, yeah. So the guys maybe... are warming up. They're doing. They're actually they're doing. They're stretching hamstrings back there and <laughs> doing some yoga. So it turns out that the original fame of champagne, in a lot of ways, went back to maybe a couple hundred years ago, and one of the big markets was Russia. The czars of Russia loved champagne. And the czars of Russia liked their champagne really, really sweet. So when they were drinking champagne, it was almost a third of the bottle was sugar. Wow. That's, so they basically took uh, sugar and poured they, wine into they, it. You yeah. know, every champagne, you add a little bit at the end to adjust the sugar level. But they literally were making this stuff incredibly sweet. So all of these, all of these names or, or sweetness levels for champagne go back to those days when sweet for the Tsar of Russia was 250 grams per liter. So 250 grams per liter, that's a quarter of the bottle is sugar. And then the rest of these terms, which is why extra dry, which still has some sugar in it, was extra dry compared to what the Tsars of Russia were drinking. They were drinking incredibly sweet wine. Yeah, but it is it is funny. I mean, the thing is, it basically, if you see dry, any version of dry on a label, without having to remember if it's extra dry, dry, or semi-dry, um, those are actually going to be sweet. In sparkling wine. In sparkling wine. In sparkling wine. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, uh, you know, it's also, of course, the wine for toasting. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how it became the celebratory wine. Right. Um, but uh, you have told the story in the past, and I like this, about the, the origins of, of the toast itself. Yeah, actually, originally the 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 Romans used to put toast in wine because it absorbed uh, the charcoal. Basically, the toasted bread absorbed some of the off aromas. So they used to put a little toast in the bread. And then there's a very famous story about, well, it can't be that famous. I'm the only person I know who tells the story. But in Victorian England, there was a, a young woman taking the baths in Bath, England. 
And a group of young gentlemen happened to see her and they said, oh, I would love to drink the champagne in which she is bathing. And one of the others said, oh, I'd rather just eat the toast. Um, so there's this concept that, yes, there's toast in wine. Even in Victorian yeah. England, they were thinking about that. But that's where we got the original um, expression yeah, of toast. Yeah, and you know, when I uh, make a piece of toast in my kitchen, yep. I hold it up and I say, wine. No, never mind. That's just really – that was really horrible. You do, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, because usually – Boy, my, breakfast must be fun with you. It Rick. is. Oh, I am, I, am a, I am a riot. I am a riot, Paul. <laughs> so a toast tip, by the way. Uh, you know, because this is this is the time of the year where lots of folks are going to be giving right. toasts, and yes. if you're at a dinner of some sort, um, the host or hostess, whoever threw the dinner, gets first shot. Right. And then don't do a whole lot of extra toasts, one or two. Right. Um, the next one is be short. Yes. Uh, you to know, the point. Yeah. Be, don't be, tell long, embarrassing stories. No. Yeah. No. That's not a wedding. And thank, even at a wedding toast, don't, don't do, do those. But Just seriously. thank everybody for being there. Yeah. Wish that the people who aren't there could be there and bottoms up. Yeah. You should have like a 30-second clock in your head. It would never be longer than that, but really 15, 10 to 15 right. is ideal. That's right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is try to avoid those wind rising up on the meeting the road behind your back kind of things. Those cliches <laughs> just don't work. You know, just say something heartfelt. And yeah. it really is if you say thank you very much, I really like you people. I mean, that's a, that's that, a, that's a great simple toast. heartfelt. Nobody's yep. ever said that to me, but I heard it would be a nice thing. I'll, next time you're over at our house, Rick, I'll try to get somebody to do that for okay. you. Okay. <laughs> that is good. I appreciate that. Um, and, and then the last thing is, you know, we, we talk about the ice bucket for, for wine, and often we say re- refuse it at, if you're out to dinner because right, you, you don't really want your wines too cold. It dulls right. the taste. For whites. For whites, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, right. <laughs> Reds is a whole different proposition, but we're talking wines. Right. But this is the exception because yep. champagne does need to be cold. Yeah. Although, on the other hand— if you're at a dinner party, if you're over at my house for a dinner party, the sparkling wine's going to be cold when it comes to the table. And by the time you get six or eight people around the table, the bottle's empty. Doesn't matter what you do with the rest of it. That's true. And and uh, you know and and which is not to say that sometimes sparkling wines like whites become a different interesting when they warm up but oh, they yeah. do but they lose their fizz they do lose their and fizz and so we don't we don't want them losing their fizz right and uh, since we don't want to lose our fizz we should move on we're taking our bubbly personalities over to the questions <laughs> so we're going to take some questions from listeners and if you'd like to ask us a question and you are not on our website go to our website which is rickandpaulwine.com all one word rick and paul wine you can also find us on iTunes by the way and subscribe for free with just a click Okay, this one is from Debbie in Sacramento. Okay, a local girl. Local girl. My boyfriend is an idiot. <laughs> okay, I got to say, one of the things I love is I love the faith that people have in asking us relationship questions because <laughs> if you knew anything, well, we actually have both married well over our heads, but it has nothing to do with us. It's, it's we've married patient people. All right, my boyfriend is an idiot. Not all the time, but a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He always wants to pop the cork on champagne by letting it fly. Besides losing a lot of the champagne, is he making the wine worse? And by the way, do you know any cute guys who know how to open it right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know guys who know how to open it right. Yeah, I don't think they're very cute. They're not very cute. They're not very very smart either because they're our friends. (laughs) Um, uh, So the answer to your question, Debbie, is yes, he's messing up the wine. Yes, he is. The people who made that wine spent years trying to get those tiny bottles bubbles into that bottle and one your, at a time and your boyfriend <laughs> is now spraying them all over the room instead of leaving them in the glass which is where they belong so that's number 1 number 2 that cork can hurt you 
And in fact, rule number one about opening any bottle of sparkling wine is the first thing you do is put it on a counter and put a towel over the top of it so that no matter what happens, the cork doesn't go flying across the room. It's the last thing you want to have happen. Yeah, and, and, and even at a, a, a secondary level of opening, because I often don't use the towel, <clears throat> but I always have my hand over the top. Right. I like it. Well, your bathed. hand is expendable, right? Yes, it's true. It's it's less expensive than a towel, actually. <laughs> um, but there should always be something over that cork for for sure, and yep. it, it really could. You don't want to put. It's a nice party till somebody gets an eye put out. Yeah, and that would be one way yeah. to do so, it. So, uh, sadly, Debbie, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so you are losing wine, and you're losing flavor, you're and losing your boyfriend's quality, an idiot, and your boyfriend's an idiot. Yeah, three for three, Debbie. <laughs> we'll keep our eyes peeled for you, though. <laughs> All right, this one is from Clarence in Livermore. This is what we were talking about earlier, which is Clarence asks, how did champagne or sparkling wine become the go-to wine for celebrations? So okay. the, the story that I know that I've heard and I read a lot and it's on the champagne website and, you know, right. and it's all sorts of stories, which is fundamentally that it goes back to the 5th century where the first king of the Franks who became the king of France, King Clovis, right. was he married uh, um, a woman from Burgundy and she he had promised her that if he'd won his last battle, he would convert to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so he was baptized in and crowned the king of France um, at Rheims in Champagne, right. and which was one of the great churches in the region at the time. Still is, although and still it's, is. it's been rebuilt since the 5th century. Yes, but well, yeah, they, they added heating. <laughs> no, they built a Gothic cathedral. <laughs> yes, there. It's quite spectacular. Yes, and I think they they put in electricity too. <laughs> that was just recently. The um and, and it, it continues on. And in fact, in like eighteen ninety eight, the other eight ninety eight. Excuse me. So yeah. we're still way back. There was Joan one, the Countess of Champagne, married Philip the Fourth, or Philip the Fair. I love the way kings have the yeah. the the. The, but you know who— I, I would be Rick the Dork. And well, I was going to say, you, you would be in the running for, I believe, Clovis's son was called Pippin the Short. Yeah, well, it could be. I you could know, be. That, that's yeah. the, you, I would yeah. be Rick, Rick the Short. In any case, that started the um, the tradition of the kings always being crowned at Rems. And so, right. and then they drink the local wine, which was champagne. Right. And it was the—it's uh, like the Kardashians, whatever the celebrities do, <laughs> everybody else did. And so it became a, a tradition in France. There is, however— a, a more cynical approach to this, and Paul, the marketer, is going to tell us. Well, I, I don't know if it's cynical. Cynical's I have enormous right. respect for the way they've done this, but the Champenois have always done a really good job of marketing their wines. And that whole story, you know, if we go back, if we go to the Champagne region of France, they tell you that sparkling wine first started being made there in the 1500s. Well, okay, that's a thousand years after Clovis. So it wasn't even the same wine. That's a bunch of hoo-ha. Um, on the other wait, hand— Wait, wait, hoo-ha. That's a, those are pretty strong words, are pretty my strong friend. pretty strong words, my friend. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, in the early 1800s and mid-1800s, a whole group of— uh, champagne house owners uh, did a superb job of marketing bubbly to the English as being the ultimate wine of parties. And perhaps the best embodiment of all of this was a guy by the name of Charles Heidsick. 
You may have seen his wine because it's still produced under the Heidsick label. Yeah, you he see was, Piper Heidsick a lot in, in the U.S., yeah. He was so well-known for throwing parties and hosting grand events and living the bon vivant lifestyle that he was known as Champagne Charlie, which is a term that is still occasionally used by people of a certain age in this country to, to describe someone who really likes and knows how to have a good time. I, I use Champagne Paul. <laughs> Thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Yeah, so Champagne Charlie went around the, the Western world throwing parties, racetracks, the opera, wherever it was. Champagne Charlie was there, and wherever Champagne Charlie was, there was a party. And that is as much as anything what made Champagne the, the wine of celebration. And no doubt... Uh, whether the history is true about the uh, kings being crowned in Rems, no right. doubt, no doubt, the uh, marketing part of it was connected back to use that as a um, a piece of the yeah. uh, to create the history. But they still, you know, they still donate champagne to Formula One races and right. uh, European Cup finals and Tour de France winners and all the rest of that. <clears throat> it's to celebrate. And unfortunately, they pop the cork and spread the bubbles. Spray and the bottles. Debbie would not be happy with That's them. That's right, Debbie. That's, sorry, don't don't. Don't, go out with a, a Formula One racer just or, because they're rich and handsome and daring, but they don't know how to open champagne. All right. That is it for questions. We will have more in just a bit. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Up next, some really horrible wine writing. There we go. We do have some really horrible wine writing tonight. We are not doing only sparkling wine, because uh, Paul's is uh, about something else. Yeah, it's actually a kind of wine I like a lot, but this description just really hit me. So here, here we go. Oaky, tobacco, vanilla, spice, and dark and red fruits dominate the aromatics. And we've talked about this before. There's like seven things. Seven and things dominate. that dominate. Yeah, right. yeah. Medium to full-bodied with a finish that shows too much oak. So the nose shows too much oak, and the medium body and the finish shows too much oak. Perhaps this wine will come together with more time. Who knows? It's not a bad wine, but at this point, the oak stands out. 92 points. <laughs> so, dear Lord, if this guy loves a wine, just gives it 110? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, and the other thing, because it's in the note here, so he wants this wine to age. Right. It's a 2001 Rioja. Right. So this wine is already 15, 16 years old. Yes. And, and one of the things that happens with wine as it ages it is more, that the intensity of the fruit tends right. to die back. Those, and it's already too oaky. The flavors of wood and leather and oak grow. Yeah. yeah. So um, whoever yeah. this critic is, if you see this, you probably don't want to take advice from Well, him. all you need to do is give him a, an oak toothpick to chew on. And on, on the other hand, if you're a winemaker and he hates your wine, you're still getting a good score. You're still so. getting 92 right. points. All right. So I'm going to run through a couple of these pretty quick because I have – this is the thing that you and I talk about often, which is that the uselessness of descriptions. Yes. Yeah, we want – we ask for – and this is – it is a very difficult job as somebody who's done some of that. Yes. You know, it's very difficult to be able to help people differentiate between similar wines. Right. So in this case, this is a, a right. rundown from a major magazine about some very expensive champagnes. These are champagnes. The prices were between eighty and one hundred twenty dollars a bottle. Okay. Right? So they're in the they're in the big leagues. They're in the big leagues. Yeah. And he's so. But could you make a choice based on a few of these? Okay. I'm, there's a bunch here, but okay. let me I'll read pick a few the one of them. I like the best. Okay. The Brut Classic offers complex flavors of apple, pear, citrus, along with a refreshingly dry finish of almond toast and caramel. Delicious. Okay. So here's another one. It displays light gold color and fine bubbles. On the palate, fresh citrus notes, toasted almond are balanced by hints of apple pastry, leaving a refreshing finish. That sounds good, too. Yeah. 
There's another one. Offers aromas of fruits and nuts, reveals a soft lemony flavor, which if I remember, that's citrus, with notes of caramel, pearl, and vanilla, leaving a refreshingly velvet, a refreshing velvety finish. Do you have one that has notes of citrus, almonds, and a refreshing finish, yeah. elegant finish? I think... Why? All of them. Here's another one. It offers an intense bouquet of complex peach. They add peach to this, although there's another peach. Apple and yeasty aromas, which is toast. The bursts in the palate like a crisp, citrusy, silky finish. There you go. And then there's this one. I like this one best. Displays a yellow color with streams of bright silver bubbles. It offers a crisp palate of fruit flavors and a creamy effervescence. That now he just gave up. He, that's right. He didn't creamy even describe a flavor. Okay, it's just got bubbles. Yeah, so he's saying, but they all have a, uh, a lingering citrusy finish. They all have notes of fruit, nuts, and all, you know, almonds. And right. They, they're, they're all exactly the same. Well, and on the one hand, you say, okay, good. That is pretty much a description of how champagne is supposed to taste. But, but if you're going to you taste decide? 12 of them and you're going to give people notes that make them all sound pretty much identical, why are you tasting, why are you posting the notes? Why not just say, Here's what really good champagne tastes like, and here are 12 wines you can buy that taste pretty much like that. Right. And, and of course, he's getting paid by the word. Rick, we wouldn't make it in that business. Yeah, well, that's, no, I'm pretty wordy. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could come up with it. It's a really, 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 really good one. Well, and, and so, you know, it's, that's an, a very, very difficult thing. We do this periodically with some, some pretty good critics and some very decent people on occasion. Right. And yet the, the problem is the same. You can't differentiate. And, and my suggestion is always if, you, if you're going to go through a list. Yeah, a shopping list. Rank them in some way that can be useful. Right. The, the lightest right. to the heaviest body, right. the, the, the more nutty versus the more fruity. Do right. something like the that. The more expensive, the less expensive. Uh, yeah. Or in, in our case, just the tall, smart, really good one and the shorter one who's way charming <laughs> all right in any case so that's the, that's a problem uh that is our bad bad writing but we are because this is a special celebratory show we got some uh, history moments oh hit do it. we have the guys we have the guys hit it boys Way to go, guys. Those guys are All right, great. well, that's it for the year. We know we, we why don't we have them? We should just have them come in and serenade now and then. That's right. We should just have them play. All right, Paul. Well, tell I'm us about start, Crystal. I'm going to start with remember, I mentioned that the big market for champagne used to be the Russians. And the favorite champagne of the Tsars of Russia was one by, uh, was one made by a company called Roterer. And it was a Roterer Cristal, very expensive bottle of wine. I've heard of that. Still sets you back a few hundred these days. But Roterer Cristal, ever since the 1800s, has always been shipped not in a dark green glass bottle, but in a clear bottle. Which, if you've heard us in the past, and we'll talk about this again, is really not the super best protective thing because light can actually eventually damage a bottle of wine. That's right. And, but the czar insisted upon it because the czar was afraid that someone of his less, um, less enchanted subjects might sneak a bomb into one of the bottles. And so he wanted all the bottles that were delivered to the palace to be in crystal clear bottles so that he could detect any bombs before they arrive. Early, early TSA planning by there the Tsar go. of Russia. That's right. In fact, but then he gets the occasional uh, TSA fast pass uh, right. bottle. Or, uh, that's right. Or and, and by the way, the, the bubbly when it comes is actually wrapped in a cellophane that is colored to protect the wine against light. So it is still protected against light. But the bottle itself is clear. Yeah. Well, it's so top uh, that, my friend. Well, 
Well, I'm not sure that I can top. I can't uh, be as explosive as yours. <laughs> but mine is the classic story of Dom Perignon. Oh, uh, yes. You know, he is the uh, the the monk who was uh, credited with saying, with, quote unquote, inventing champagne and some of the really most basic uh, 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 myths, right. but saying, "Come quickly!" It was the uh, the the telephone, uh, the wine version of the telephone. <laughs> Watson. Watson. Yes, he said in theory, "Come quickly!" I am drinking the stars. Right. He did not uh, say, "I'm seeing stars," which is what you say sometimes after you get up the next morning. Yes. Well, he was blind. That's right. He that was, was another blind. issue. Yes. Um, but this was the real story. Is late in the 1600s, uh, Dom Perignon was sent to Champagne from Benedictine monks and they were Mm -hmm, big into mm -hmm. wine. And the problem with Champagne was that their wine was fizzy. Yes. What was happening was... (laughs) It was a problem then. Yes, uh, for them (laughs) at the time. It's not anymore. But um, what it was is, remember what happens with winemaking is yeast eats sugar and the byproduct is alcohol, heat, and CO2, which is bubbles. bubbles right? That's right. So, but what would happen, and in, in, they didn't really have very high-tech gear back in the 1600s. So what they would do is they would wait for that gurgling sound, which was the yeast eating the sugar and the gas being released. Right. To, when, once that finished, they would pour it into bottles and cork the bottles. Yes, and then the bottles would explode and then because the bottles, it would start it, fermenting again. Yes, or what would happen is in spring they would wake up. Yes, and so the but, but the bottles were already sealed, and so now the the CO two was inside the liquid. It was fizzy. Yes, and uh, some of the bottles would explode. It was it, it wasn't yep. the wine they wanted, and so good old uh, Dom was sent to end that. And because he didn't know the chemistry or the biology of that, he uh, or the whatever is microbiology, whatever yeah. science, he really didn't know those sciences. I think it's, uh, the official term is the yeastiology. Yeastiology of that. There you go. <laughs> so eventually, what he imagined he ended up doing was it was a little bit of a marketing thing where let's embrace the fizz. He also refined the winemaking, introduced corks, good corks, um, and a lot of other good things. But But this is classic marketing, Rick. You got a wine that's fermenting in the bottle. The bottles are exploding. Nobody wants to buy the wine. It's exploding the bottles. It's still fermenting. And his solution, don't fix the wine. Stronger bottles. Yeah, stronger bottles. Stronger bottles. Well, this was also about the time that glass bottles were being made. And, you know, the glass really didn't come in into uh, – they didn't really start making glass bottles at Until any level. Until about this time. About this time. And so yeah. they, they could make stronger bottles. And that's when – and talking earlier about the wines of Champagne in 898. Right. One of the reasons they didn't keep the bubbles because they didn't have any way to seal them. And right. so the gas – either in a barrel or a cask of some right. sort, right. the gases would, would go away. But when yep. they sealed them, because that was an easy way to deliver them and also, you know, it – that's when the gas started to to, to brace. Yeah, uh, but to, I love it. The wine is defective. It's full of bubbles. What do we do? Charge them double, put it in a heavier bottle, and call it champagne. So that's how we should uh, approach our, our show is we should <laughs> tell people we're supposed to be like this. <laughs> charge them double. And charge them double <laughs> or something because we don't charge anything. Maybe we should charge them. All right. That's our history. But it is time to take a couple more questions. Good. If Remember, if you'd like to ask us a question and you're not on our website, go right there, rickandpaulwine.com. We answer all kinds of questions, as you're about to hear. All right. So this is from Katie in Fresno, and Katie is one of our regular listeners. Yes, in she Fresno. She says, I yeah. think I remember you guys saying something about how many bubbles were in a bottle of champagne. And what was it? And what is this? Is it the same for all of them? Some champagnes seem to have smaller bubbles. All uh-huh, right. So. Uh-huh. This was uh, one of my regular morning readings. It was the Journal <laughs> yeah. of Physical Chemistry. This was actually in, came in 2015. 
Um, they published this authority from the University of Rennes. We we're just talking about Rennes in Champagne Ardennes. Um, one million in a glass, or five million bubbles per bottle. That was, by the way, a reduction of half of their what their estimate. What they do is they measure the pressure. What would Dom Perignon say? They're he, down. They're half the bottle. Would, half the bubbles are gone. He would say, "Come quickly! I'm drinking half the stars." I'm drinking half the stars. Yes. And and she is right that different types of bubbly have different sized bubbles. And in basic terms, the longer the wine has been under pressure, the smaller and finer the bubbles. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like them more, but it's that's that's the general rule is the longer the gas is in suspension in the liquid, the smaller the bubbles get. So the the in, in essence in theory we do always say the smaller the bubble the the higher the quality of the wine and I think that's true of, of radio hosts. The smaller the host the <laughs> Cuter they are. I think they're talking about bubbles in the brain. The smaller the bubbles. Could be. Maybe I have more bubbles. Uh, So, but that's what it is. So, yeah, they are bigger, and it is the style. And a lot of wine. Sometimes wine. The we'll do another show another time. We talk about how champagne is made, but the method of making champagne. Some some where the the bubbles actually develop in the bottle. Some develop in large in large tanks. Those tend to have larger bubbles. Right. Only because they're released sooner. Yep. Okay. Uh, We've got another one. This is from Alex in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Why do so many reviews spend so much time on aromas and then the tasty lists are almost never the same as the smells? (laughs) Is there really that big a difference? There is not that big a difference. Okay. First of all, Alex, you get— That's a great line. Yeah, this is—you got me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A couple of things. First of all, they talk about aromas because actually we can only taste about five or six things, right? Used to be the big four, which were sweet— Salty, sour, bitter. They've added umami. Now they've added heat, spice. Um, but that's and about tears. all. That's about all you can, you can taste, taste. The tears sometimes. The tears are salty, right? Yeah. That's just salt. Yeah. So you can only taste those six things. So all that other stuff is actually the aromas interacting with your, you know, your your sinuses, basically where you smell everything. So that's why they talk about it. Now, why do the why do the flavors never match the smells? My guess is because they're getting paid to write. And they've got to think of something new or they can't sound intelligent, I guess. that's what they got to do. Yeah, and the truth of it is taste is 80, 85% smell. Right. And our, our, we actually right. have it's olfactory. It's a good thing for us because we don't smell that bad. Yeah. Yes. Well, we sound terrible. Right? Um, <laughs> and we have very poor taste. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the, uh, so even actually you, after you swallow, you have olfactory glands still working back, back of your throat, roof of your right. mouth. And and so we translate smell into taste. Having said that, it also has a lot to do with the way they're trained. A lot of the wine trainings start with a lot of smells because you do a lot of analysis by smell. Um, On the other hand, Rick, what is the single thing that the vast majority of consumers want to know about a wine? Is it smooth? Is it smooth? Yeah. And that has nothing to do with what it smells like or even tastes like. It only has to do with texture. And Alex is absolutely right. Not nearly enough people who write about wine spend enough time talking about texture. Well, and more than that, even too, is even if they're going to just write about the taste, they should write about the taste. You know, smell and taste are in essence unified hmm. and, and, don't, and don't spend the time on aromas. You know, you see this a lot. You know, say the grapes have developed great aromas. No, just say the great, great flavors because that's how normal people talk. So, Alex, <laughs> there's, there, it should never really be much of a difference. Sometimes you, you know, because smell does translate to taste. They're just doing that to show you all the things they can pick out. All right, this one is from Emily in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Are there glasses that are best for champagne and bubbly? 
I think those madman glasses are out of style, but I have a friend who says it tastes best in a wine glass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Emily, I am going to agree with your friend. Well, aren't you just a shocker? Now, what Emily's talking about uh, in the Mad Men glasses are those flat saucer tape-shaped glasses theoretically modeled on Marie Antoinette's left breast. Yes, not her right, by the way, her left. That's been tossed out completely. I'm still going with it. More marketing. But it's also when they make those big champagne fountains in the movies in the 50s where all the bubbly went floating down through the glasses. Those were the glasses. Yes, and those are are called coupes, by the way, for cocktails. Right. C-O-U-P-E. And and. And the reason that they're not very good for bubbly is that the bubbles disappear from a flat surface really fast. So then everybody started saying, well, you got to keep the bubbles in the glass. So they went to flutes, which are very tall, skinny glasses. And these days, the people who make most of the bubbly in the world say we actually prefer drinking it out of a small white wine glass. The flutes don't let enough of... Where's Alex? He's going to love this. The aromas? They don't let enough (laughs) of the aromas of the wine. Sorry, Alex. Out into your nose before you drink the wine, so they go for a white wine glass. Drink what you have. Don't use the 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 Marie Antoinette glasses are perfect for uh, throwing a little ice cream and pouring a little creme de menthe over the top of it. Not so good for bubbly wine. Yeah, and and uh, in fact, you and I were in Franciacorta together, um, which is yep. the Italian bubbly region, and we never saw a flute. That's right. Um, but having said that, a really elegant flute is just fun. And so part of wine is its funness. And, you know, they, it's funosity. It's funosity. It's funny, <laughs> funny ability. Um, in any case, it's um, it, it, so the, I love flutes just because they're pretty. They're fun. Kind of like us. Yeah. But at the same time, if you think you need to go out and buy 12 glasses just because somebody's coming over to your house for a bottle of bubbly, you're wrong. No. You can serve it in some decent wine glasses. Yes, you can. Uh, but as I say, go for the pretty, like us, and that would be Bottle Talk. And we are finishing another round of Bottle Talk with Excellent. Rick and Paul. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question and are not on our website, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. Don't forget, we're on iTunes. You can subscribe for free. Just a little click. If you learned anything today, we hope it's bubbly makes everything better. Even our show. Actually, especially our show. And we do need the help. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.